you've got a Bible, uh, you might want to start turning to Romans 5, verses uh, 1 to 11. By the way, I've kind of stretched her out a little bit and shortened her. She doesn't really look like that. Neely! But not quite. So Romans 5, uh, verses 1 to 11, written by a man called Paul, who wrote a large uh, part of the um, New Testament uh, in the form of letters encouraging churches. Who was this guy, Paul? Well, the Apostle Paul was once, hear this, was once a persecutor of Christians, then called uh, Saul. Uh, His whole life mission was to systematically root out, eliminate, destroy Christian, early Christian believers. Nice. So what happened to this guy, Paul? A miracle, basically. One day, this Christian hater had a radical encounter with the risen, resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road. You can read about it in Acts. That totally turned his life around forever. Amazing, really. And do you know what? And do you know what? Like the Apostle Paul, today, you too could have a radical encounter with Jesus this morning, if you want to. It's for real. What do you think about that? Over the last few weeks, we've been unpacking what biblical community is all about. What does God say about it? So far, we've talked about the importance of being a spirit-filled community. We've talked about being a worshipping community, a healing community, a devoted community. Next week, Paul uh, Woodward's going to be unpacking what it means to be an international community, a community of every tribe and tongue. So if you have guests from different nations, particularly if they haven't heard um, of the gospel or don't trust in Jesus as their treasure, please invite them to come along next week. Yeah? This week, however, we're going to be touching on what it means to be a joyful community. You know, whenever I look at Jed, whether it's that picture or generally, she reminds me of joy. Philip Philip, uh, Yancey writes, Too many churches have become mausoleums for the dead rather than coliseums of prayers for a living God. They have lost the spirit of Pentecost. They have lost their enthusiasm. They have lost their joy for Jesus. And so this morning, my prayer is that every one of us recovers, regains, reignites, if you like, that joy that should be the church. Jubilee, that's what it means. Are you up for that this morning? So let's read Romans 5, shall we? Verses 1 to 11. Interestingly, that was what the second song was um, based on, Romans 5. Um, Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope, of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus that you are a God of joy, that you are a God of celebration. I thank you, Lord, that you named this church Jubilee. And as we celebrate uh, Jubilee this weekend, we want to remember you, our Jubilee, our celebration, our joy, our hope, our love. We want to we wanna, we wanna, uh, join in the party in heaven over people who are being saved day in, day out across this nation, and across this world. And this morning, Lord, we pray for that joy. We pray you pour out that joy into our hearts as we unpack your word, your truth. Thank you, Jesus. Question. How do you know a tree is an apple tree? You are sharp. Because it's got the fruit of an apple tree on it, namely apples. Now, next question. How do you know a tree is an orange tree? Look at you. Yeah. It's got oranges on it. Easy, isn't it? Now, I'm going to put you to the test now. How do you know that a community like this one, Jubilee, has been transformed, radically affected by God, the Holy Spirit's presence and power? Any thoughts? No, not oranges. No, sorry. Not apples. What? Because of the fruit. Um, Yes, it's got the fruit of the Spirit all over it. Paul, the same Paul, writes uh, in Galatians 5, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy. The Bible tells us that joy is one of the fruits that marks you and me out as people that have had a real encounter with God, with Jesus. That is what first and foremost really um, interested me in Christianity 12 years ago. The joy that was so evident in people who loved Jesus. Really? You might be surprised by that, some of you. And so the reason why I've spent the last few weeks looking at this passage is that I think it tells us three things about joy, about you and me, that are so important if we are to be a joy-filled community. It tells us three things. It tells us that Christian joy is not an option, but a certainty for us. This passage tells us that Christian joy is unique, almost in contradiction 
to the world's view of joy. And thirdly, Christian joy is rooted in the joy news, the gospel of Jesus. So point one, Christian joy is not an option, but a certainty. In verse one, Paul talks about justification by, by faith. Justification by faith. And this phrase is a phrase coined by the Apostle Paul to describe the radical nature of the Christian faith, what we believe. In fact, this phrase is really a summary of what Paul has been writing about throughout the, the, the rest of the, cha- the earlier chapters in uh, this Romans book from 1 to 4. It's almost a summary, if you like, of what he has said so far in chapters 1 to 4. So what does it mean, justification by faith? Every other religion, worldview, belief system says the same thing. It says, live as you ought to, follow the rules, and then, and only then, will God, or somebody else, bless you, accept you. That's a summary of every other faith or belief, even if you're an atheist. Live as you ought to, and then, and only then, will God, or somebody else, bless you and accept you. Christianity, however, quite astoundingly says something altogether different. Christianity says you receive God's blessings and acceptance as a free gift through faith alone, trusting in Jesus' saving work on the cross entirely because of Jesus' perfect record, not your own. You didn't earn your acceptance. Jesus did that for you without you doing a thing, actually. All the riches of heaven, the promise of eternity, an intimate, loving life with God, the privilege and power of co-working with the King of heaven, all these things, wonderful things, are open to you free of charge because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. That's what justification by faith means. Wow! And this passage says... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, all of that, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in God through Jesus. Astounding stuff, really. John Stott, um, he's now dead. Um, He died recently. Um, in his commentary on Romans says, it seems clear from this paragraph in Romans 5 that the main mark of justified believers is joy. If you're a Christian here this morning, um, if you trust and worship Jesus as your treasure, if you, you will have joy. It's almost like a command in the Bible. It's inevitable. It's a certainty. Do you think, do you know that you have that joy? You see, today a lot of people don't believe that. In fact, quite frankly, a lot of people are quite confused about happiness and joy these days. They're not really sure what it is. Even Christians, you know what, especially Christians. Let me take you on a little round trip through uh, the confused thinking on happiness and joy. Just for a few minutes, if that's okay. 
Today, happiness seems to be the thing that everybody yearns to achieve. It was obviously true back in the 13th century as well when a man called uh, Thomas Aquinas, who was a Bible teacher and philosopher, wrote, there is, it, there is within every soul a thirst for happiness and meaning. When you look at the magazine racks or the bookstores or people being interviewed, whether you're watching Grand Designs or The Voice or Charlie and Lola, the pursuit of happiness and fun, really, and joy and pleasure, I would say, is the main goal and theme of a lot of these programs. So what brings happiness and joy? And I think generally today, the world has come to think things like scientific and political and social progress. These are the tools, if you like, that make us happy. Also, over the years, there's been a lot of, there's been a, uh, lots about happiness psychology, positive thinking, training your mind to be happy. This is what you need to do. It's easy. Go for it. Did you know that there's a happier.com? I think it's actually being um, sorted out at the moment. You can't get onto it, but anyhow. Um, there's a happier.com, and on happier.com, they give you a list of the sure five, surefire top five ways to get happiness as the world sees it today. And the five things are be in possession of the basics food, shelter, good health, safety, one. Two, get enough sleep. This is not a joke. Three, have relationships that matter to you. Four, take compassionate care of others and of yourself. Five, have work or an interest that, in, that engages you. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? Most people in most places, in most centuries, in most cultures, have never had these things and probably never will. All around the world, there are people who will never get enough food, shelter, good health, and safety. What are we saying? Or what are they saying? Are all these people throughout history doomed to never experience lasting happiness and joy? What about point five? Engaging and interesting work. A lot of you are thinking, what on earth is that? <laughs> now, don't hear what I'm not saying. These things are all good. Temporary, temporary pleasure does come through them, through these five points, through happiness psychology, through social and political scientific and scientific progress. They do. Good things do come. But if we really look, say, over the last 200 years, with all the happiness psychology out there, with all our greater economic choices, more political freedom, increased job opportunities, um, longer life, free health benefits, can we really say with our hand on our hearts that we are more happy, more jubilant, more joyful than our ancestors? I'm not so sure. And you know what? People are seeing this now. They're writing about it. The world is kind of turning, almost 
the world is in a kind of schizophrenia about the issue of happiness and joy. On the one hand, we crave happiness, yet on the other hand, a lot of people are afraid that pursuing joy and happiness will result in a dead end. A good example of that would be a, a lady called Amy Bloom, an American writer who wrote an article a couple of years ago, um, and she called it the rap on happiness. And quite frankly, she, in her writing, she hates all, that, all the stuff that has been written about how to be happy, how to, be, how to pursue joy. She says this, smart people often talk trash about happiness. And worse than trash, about books on happiness. And they, have been, and they have been doing so for centuries. Because happiness studies and positive psychology we don't see as being the work of the devil, but the work of morons. Her words, not mine. So that kind of, kind of gives you an idea where she's going with this article. It's quite subtle, isn't it? And then in the rest of the article, she tells why she thinks this. But her main reason is this, and it's a good one. The real problem with happiness is neither its pursuers nor their books. It's happiness itself. It's transience. The fact that it is short-lived. It is deep, but often brief. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall, the beloved dies. It cannot last forever. What's she saying? She's saying if you really want peace and joy in life, don't pursue happiness because it's only temporary. It won't last. It never lasts. It'll fail you. If you don't agree with that, you probably haven't lived long enough yet. Just give it time. So where are we now? Detachment. We've gone from pursuing all these things to leave them well alone. Detachment. That's how you really stay happy. Buddhists have actually been doing this for years. In fact, many of the Greek philosophers around Jesus and Paul's time were all about detachment. What's detachment? Don't give your heart to anything. Don't pursue joy. Don't pursue happiness. It'll fail you in the end. This is the only way to be content in life. But surprisingly, do you know what? That doesn't work either. Joseph Epstein, uh, an American scholar, wrote this. He was talking about detachment. He says this, my guess, when he's talking about detachment, my guess is that this program wouldn't work, but even if it did, would such utter detachment from life constitute a life rich and complex enough to be worth living? Many would say yes. I am not among them. What do you think? Where are you with the whole joy and happiness thing? C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the, uh, the writer of the Narnia books, wrote about this thing called detachment a bit more eloquently, I think. He said this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully 
ground with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, in that coffin, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. If you give your heart to things, if you try to seek happiness, then, you know, sure enough, you're going to be disappointed. But if you detach yourself, I'm never going to give my heart to anything, then what does that do? It dehumanizes you. It hardens you. So there lies the confusion, the dilemma over happiness that is all over the place these days. We bob back and forth between one and the other. Neither works. So is there any way forward? I hope so, because there's two more points to go. <laughs> Point two, Christian joy is unique. Christian joy actually gets you out of the dilemma. How? Christian joy is unique in that it is not based on circumstances at all, but in God. That is a radical statement. I can obviously see you think so, think so too. I'm going to say it again. Christian joy is unique in that it is not based in circumstances at all, but in God. Look what verse 3 says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. <coughs> we rejoice in our sufferings. What does that mean? What's suffering? Suffering is favorable, good circumstances going away, isn't it? You see, I think that's where the confusion lies. Because I actually don't believe Christian joy is what the world calls happiness. What the world calls happiness is this. Getting control of your life so that you keep all your circumstances favorable all the time. That's what we've been really saying so far, isn't it? Trying harder and harder to make my career go well. Trying harder and harder to make my bank account grow bigger. Trying harder and harder uh, to please my wife and kids. Trying harder and harder uh, to think positively. These aren't necessarily bad things. Some of them are good things. We've said that already. But what, what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is getting across in this passage in Romans 5 is that Christian joy, biblical joy, God's joy, is not rooted primarily in these things because they're too unstable. John Piper, who's in the position of a ninja warrior now, I like that picture. John Piper said this, he's a church leader in America, he said, every joy that does not have Jesus as the central gladness of that joy is a hollow joy that in the end will burst like a bubble. That's the answer to the dilemma. That's Paul's answer to real joy and fulfillment. Verse 11, more than that, we, re we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's not susceptible to circumstances. He's the one who's not um, subject to the up and down situations of life. 
He's unchangeable, always reliable, never rocking, unshakable. That is our God. But do you know what? We're not just going to settle for that this morning. Look at verse 3 and 4. What does it say? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. What's he saying? He's saying this. And hear it. Because it's groundbreaking. He's saying that in the midst of suffering, in the thick of circumstances going wrong, life going pear-shaped, it's not that God just gets us through by the skin of our teeth. No way. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, not only does God get us through unfavorable circumstances, but rather Christian joy grows. It increases more so in the midst of unfavorable, unfavorable circumstances than it would do if things were all going okay. He's saying unfavorable circumstances, they strengthen you, they fortify you, they produce character, endurance, perseverance, an assurance of a hope in God, despite, as a result of, actually, what you're feeling and what you're going through. It grows, it gets stronger. Do you hear that? If life's not going your way, if life's not going the way you're expecting it to, this morning, here, now, I believe God wants, to, wants you to hear that. Let me help you with this. Uh, remember when you were little, uh, some of you might have a really hard time thinking that back that far. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jonathan Knight's not here to pick on this morning. Remember how your mum used to say, don't eat sweets before your dinner. And you did. Remember? Charlotte says that quite a lot to all three of the children in her family. Two of her children are aged four and five, and one's 41. <laughs> don't eat your sweets before dinner. Why does she say that? Because it will ruin our appetites. You see, the trouble with eating sweets before your meal is that it gives you a sugar buzz. And that sugar buzz makes you feel not hungry anymore. Sweets mask the fact that your body needs proteins and vitamins and goodness, all the good stuff that you don't get from sweets alone. And do you know what? Sex and money and relationships and power and acceptance and good health and big pension pots, all these favorable circumstances are like spiritual sugar. They feel good. They taste good. They are good. We want them. But in the end, they hide temporarily what you really need, what you were really made for, what your soul deep, deep down craves and yearns for. But hear this. As Christians, as people who trust in Jesus, when these favorable circumstances go away, in the midst of suffering, what happens? It drives you into God. Because when all the sweets are gone, you are forced to go after the feast that your soul really needs. 
to get the nutrients that your body really needs. When things go bad, it drives you into Jesus. You develop a poise, a power, a courage, a strength, a joy that never, ever goes away, regardless of circumstances. That's what Pauline was telling us about last week, wasn't she, when she talked about her experience of cancer, living with cancer. Faith rises, trust heightens, love increases, and even in the midst of everything that she was going through, that they were both going through, joy increases. Even in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of suffering. And you know what? It is God, the Holy Spirit, that makes that real for us now. That's what it says, verse 5. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who He, Jesus, has given us. We have the foretaste of the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the ru- experiencing the rule of God now in our lives. Do you experience that day in, day out? Richard Sibbs, a 17th century writer, writes this, Sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. Therefore, sometimes the immediate testimony of the Spirit is necessary. It comes in saying, I am thy salvation. And our hearts are stirred up and comforted with joy inexpressible. Do you have this radical joy? Do you have this unique joy that never fails you? That's always growing, real, tangible, feelable, as God gets poured out into your hearts day in, day out. Come what may, through the Holy Spirit who Jesus has given you. Do you see it now? Do you see it enough to be soul-transforming? Christian joy is certain because God is certain. Christian joy is unique because it's not not based in changeable circumstances, but an unchanging, glorious God. Finally and briefly, point three. Christian joy is rooted in the joy news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Where does this inexpressible, what Richard Sibbs writes, where does this joy inexpressible come from? Well, verse 8 and 9 tells us, and it says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, you and me, Christ died for us to save us from the wrath of God. That's the gospel. That's the joy news of Jesus. That's where our joy comes from. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be thinking, that doesn't sound very joyful to me. The wrath of God sounds a bit scary. But let me tell you, you haven't thought it through properly. What's God's wrath? It's not just God having a bad day, like you and me. It's not just God in a mood. No, the wrath of God is God's just and righteous opposition to injustice and evil and all wrongdoing. If you read the papers, if you look around, if you switch on the telly, if you have conversations with your friends or your rallies, 
the one conclusion that you all must, must come to is that there is something fundamentally wrong in the world. People, communities, nations, world leaders, even our family members, in some shape or form, are a little messed up. In need of help, far from perfect, their behavior, their thinking, their attitudes, their past, if you're honest. Uh, the English playwright and novelist Somerset Morgan once said, if I wrote down every thought I ever thought and every deed I have ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. That's bad. <laughs> the Apostle Paul writes earlier on in this letter in Romans 3, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even Jesus says in Mark 7, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes him or her. Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. I think that about includes us all in some way or another. All these are vomit from the heart, says Jesus. A heart in rebellion towards God. Sin. That's the reality. And we can quite happily ignore it as if it wasn't real. But you know what? The God of creation cannot just ignore our sin. He cannot just sweep all of our sin, all of our lives of dishonor and disobedience and disregard for him under some big, big carpet in the sky. He can't. That's the reason why he's worth worshiping, because he's just and righteous. He always does the right thing. That's what makes him God, doesn't it? But the joy news is this. The God of the Bible, Jesus, loves you too much to give you what you deserve, what I deserve. And so, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ instead died for us. He took the wrath, the punishment, the condemnation that was owing to us so that we might go free. That's the gospel. That's the, June, that's the joy news that we celebrate as Christians. Not our doing, not as a consequence of our hard work and effort, like all other beliefs believe. No, it's different. Totally amazing grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor from a God who is in love, besotted by you and me. And you know what? The Apostle Paul says this is the foundation of our joy. That's where our joy comes from. It's not just a concept. It's not just um, positive thinking. It's real. Look. Let's finish with this, and I think it will help. Imagine that you went on holiday, and a friend stares at your home while you're away. And while you're away, that friend opens your mail, as you've asked him to do, so that nothing gets missed. And one morning he opens a letter and it's a bill and he decides to pay it himself. That's nice. And when you get back, you get to hear about this and you know what? You want to thank him. How do you respond? The answer is, you have no idea how to respond. Why? Because you don't know the size of the debt that was owing to you. How big was that bill? Was it a fiver for a book you bought on Amazon? If it was, you'd say, cheers, buddy. 
Thanks so, for, thanks so much for that. You really shouldn't have bothered. But thanks. But what if it was the bill from the inland revenue, the tax man? They found you at last. <laughs> the bill for all the taxes that you owed them for 20, at least 20 years suddenly turned up on your doorstep. Thousands and thousands of pounds. Money that you just didn't, that you don't even have. And your buddy paid it off all in one go. How would you respond then? You'd be astounded, wouldn't you? You'd be thunderstruck. You'd probably be jumping up and down. You would want to do anything for the person who got you out of that mess. Wouldn't you? The response would be completely different. Totally. Why? Because unless you know the size of the debt that was owing to you, you don't know whether to say, oh, thanks a lot, or to fall at his feet in gratitude. That's how the gospel of joy, that's how the gospel of Jesus brings you joy everlasting. That's the importance of knowing the wrath of God. That's how we know how to respond to Jesus. God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says in John 3 as well, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It says it in Hebrews 12 too as well, For the joy set before him, you were the joy, for the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the horror of the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, from the outside, the truth that you're more wicked than you ever believed you were, and that you deserve rightfully the holy wrath and punishment of God, sounds like bad news, doesn't it? It should, because it is. The truth hurts. But from the inside, once you put your trust in Jesus, once you understand the amazing grace of God, once you understand his ultimate act of love for you, to you, the magnitude of the debt that was lifted off of you and onto the cross, once you get that, you know what? It inflicts a joy on you that never, ever, ever goes away. If you don't get that, that's because you're on the wrong side. You're not on the inside. The only debt that can really sink you has been paid. The only disease that can really kill you has been healed. That is our foundation for rejoicing, Jubilee. That's the joy news of Jesus. Why would you not want that? That's what makes us a joyful community, a celebrating community, a jubilee community. That is what we have in common. That is what binds us together like nothing else. That is what the world around us is crying out for. Jubilee, while you and me were still sinners, Christ died for you. That is how loved you are. 
That is how precious you are to God. To end, Philip Rancy writes this, Philip Yancey. The church is a place to exalt, to give thanks, to celebrate the great news that all is forgiven, that God is love, and that victory is certain. The band can come up. Let's pray. Actually, let's stand, shall we?